right, everyone. Welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast, where we help you connect with the past through food. My name is James. I'm your host. And today is episode 79. So before I dive into today's episode, I wanted to thank you all for finding the show. If you like what you hear today, make sure you subscribe to the show. (laughs) This way you'll make sure you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. I'm also still adjusting back to normal life after welcoming a baby into the house, (laughs) so I appreciate your patience as I'm working to get back on that weekly episode cadence. So, with that out of the way, let's dive into today's show. There are many disasters that happen all too often in today's world. The Great Molasses Flood was one for the ages. (laughs) This unique disaster happened at a time when construction regulation was lax or non-existent. Today, we're going to talk about how a sticky situation quickly grew dire for hundreds of people in Boston. The date was January 15, 1919. It was a mild winter day for Boston. The thermometer hovered around 40 degrees Fahrenheit and there was no snow around. Boston's North End neighborhood was a picture of activity. The neighborhood was close to the docks, so it became sort of an industrial center in the town. It was here that a company known as the U.S. Industrial Alcohol had a massive steel tank designed to hold 2.5 million, so 2,500,000 gallons of molasses. They were able to ferment that molasses and quickly turn it into alcohol that was then used in the war effort to make dynamite and other explosives. Around 12.30 p.m., workers began taking their lunch breaks when the ground began to rumble. The next several hours brought chaos to the area as people tried to make sense of what had just happened. And before we talk about the flood of molasses going down the streets of Boston, I want to talk about the steel tank. Now, this disaster happened at a time when it was notoriously difficult to hold a business accountable for their mistakes. So USIA cut corners in how they constructed this steel tank. It was woefully under-engineered for the task it was built for. Now, growing up, I was an amateur aquarium enthusiast, and as my fish tanks increased in size, the thickness of the glass or plastic also increased in size. You know, it's basic engineering. If you want to hold back a lot of liquid, you need a really thick wall to do it. The steel tank that the U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company built to store their molasses was designed to hold 2.5 million gallons of molasses. So that was its maximum capacity it was designed for. It was 50 feet tall and about 90 feet in diameter. The steel walls ranged in thickness from about 0.31 inches near the bottom to 0.67 inches near the top. These were far too thin to support the weight of a full tank of molasses. 
USIA also cut corners in other areas. They didn't do full testing for flaws and imperfections. Simply filling the tank with water first would have revealed several flaws with the tank. In addition to the thin walls, they had a rivet design that leaked, and the first cracks in the tank originated from the placement of these rivets. It was a known fact that this tank leaked. Kids would show up to the site with cups to gather molasses that was leaking out of the tank after a ship had unloaded. Molasses had been poured into the tank 29 times leading up to this accident. Only four of those times was the tank filled to capacity. And the fourth time the tank was filled to capacity happened just two days before the catastrophe. I can't imagine being near this site on a daily basis. After the tank had been filled, it would creak and groan. And of course, these noises were ignored by everyone, including USIA. Now, the raw steel used to construct this tank also had other fundamental flaws. It had been mixed with too little manganese, and this meant that the steel would get brittle when it cooled below 59 degrees Fahrenheit. As I mentioned previously, the temperature the day of the disaster was 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So a perfect storm had been put in place. A tank that was not designed and properly engineered to hold this amount of liquid. And brittle metal. <laughs> and it's a busy time of day when you have a lot of people out on the streets. So the stage was set for what was about to come next. Growing up, I moved slow. I took my time getting ready. I took my time getting places. I'm sure from my parents, it was maddeningly slow. On more than one occasion, my mom said that I was moving about as fast as molasses in January. After this episode, I'm going to view that as a compliment. Molasses is not like water. If you tip over a bottle of molasses, it takes a second for the syrup to come out. And if that molasses is cold, it's going to move even more slowly. However, on the day of the Great Molasses Flood, you had a proverbial wall of molasses released all at once on the town without warning. As the tank failed, 2.3 million gallons of molasses responded to the pool of gravity and picked up dramatic speed very quickly. Now, this tsunami of molasses was 15 feet high, and it was moving at a rapid 35 miles per hour. The unsuspecting victims had no chance to get out of the way. Within just a few minutes, the wave of molasses ran its course, and in its wake, it demolished six buildings, took down a support for a nearby elevated rail line, 21 people were killed, 150 people were injured, and six of the people that were killed were city workers who were just on their lunch break when they were hit by the molasses. The Boston Post reported on the disaster the next day. They said, There was no escape from the wave. Caught, human being, and animal alike could not flee. Running in it was impossible. 
snared in its flood, was to be stifled. Once it smeared a head, human or animal, there was no coughing off the sticky mass. To attempt to wipe it with hands was to make it worse. Most of those who died, died from suffocation. It plugged nostrils, almost airtight. Ambulances arrived on the scene quickly. The rapid response was attributed to Boston Police Patrolman Frank McManus being in the right place at the right time. He had just left the tank and was about 100 or so feet away when he felt a wet, sticky substance hit him in the back. He thought it was mud at first, and he said, I was at a loss to know what it was at first, thinking it might be mud, but when I turned my head, I saw the molasses tank plunge out in the direction of the elevated structure, which buckled over. The next second, a wave of molasses swept up the street in my direction, but I beat it out in the race, for I rushed up a side street and escaped, except for my uniform, hat, and shoes being literally covered with the sticky substance. He then ran to the nearest phone to call for help. His message was direct and to the point. Send all available rescue vehicles and personnel immediately. There's a wave of molasses coming down Commercial Street. Now imagine for a second being a dispatcher receiving that call from an officer. It's almost unbelievable. Once he placed the call, he headed out into the swamp to try and rescue victims who were stuck. Stretcher after stretcher loaded up victims and carried them to nearby hospitals. Family members and friends were desperate for an update on if their loved ones were okay. Did they make it out? They flocked to the hospitals hoping to get any news on what had happened to those they loved. The Boston Globe reported scores of anxious men and women hastened to these places to ascertain if any of their relatives were among the dead and injured, and many of those who found their fears true became hysterical, some demanding medical aid. It's important to note that this was a working-class neighborhood. The demographics were made up of immigrants and city workers. Those were the victims. No one rich or famous died in the flood, and those that survived the disaster did not go on to be rich and famous. They went back to their normal lives and recovered from the injuries and trauma they had experienced. This, is a, this was a day that was full of quick thinking and many heroes. Remember that the wave of molasses took out a support that compromised the elevated rail system. Train conductor Royal Albert Lehman had just gone by when that support was taken out. His train jumped the tracks. He quickly got out of his train and made his way across the tangled wreckage to stop another train before it plunged to the street below. These trains were running about every seven minutes, and that quick action helped prevent an even worse problem from happening. Newspapers at the time of this incident did a great job at gathering eyewitness accounts of various people who witnessed the disaster. So I'm going to share a few of those now because they really do a good job at painting a picture of the confusion and destruction that ensued. Joseph Hiller told the Boston Globe that there was no warning. He told the newspaper that he was returning to the nearby Bay State Freight House from lunch when the tragedy struck. He said he heard a rumble and saw the big tank open out and fall apart while the wall of molasses 50 feet high in the front rolled out over the ground with a seething, hissing sound. 
Now, a few people mentioned that it seemed that the wave was 50 feet high. So in places it may have been 50 feet high, uh, the official tally that I saw repeatedly was 15 feet. So we can just call it a range between 15 and 50 feet. A soldier who was but a short distance from the spot at the time of the explosion said that he heard no sound of an explosion, but that the big molasses tank simply seemed to collapse. The jar, he said, however, was felt for a distance of about 50 feet. H.P. Palmer, an accountant at the electric freight plant, told the newspaper he heard the low rumble around 12.30 p.m. He looked out of the window, felt the building, which was in a in rocking, and at a glance saw that something dreadful had happened. Within a minute, huge streams of molasses began to run through the various streets and passageways, filling every section for two blocks. Martin Clowardy was sleeping at his home at 6 Cops Hill Terrace, which extended along Commercial Street, when the flood occurred. His 65-year-old mother, sister, and brother were also in the house. The force of the tank's collapse pulled their building out into the street, smashing it against the elevated rail line. His mother, Bridget Clowardy, was crushed in the wreckage. He said, I was in bed on the third floor of my house when I heard a deep rumble. I was asleep, and the rumble did not wake me thoroughly. The first impression I had that something unusual had happened was when I awoke in several feet of molasses. It didn't dawn on me that it was molasses I was in. I thought I was overboard. He was able to find his sister, but couldn't find either his mother or his brother in the debris. His brother Stephen was rescued, but later died in an asylum from what the family said was trauma from the flood. Mary Musco, who lived at Four Cops Hill Terrace, told the Globe she was standing at her window looking out into the Clowardy home when the explosion occurred and saw the family's home fly into the air. Her own home rocked, but otherwise remained intact. I knew there were people in the house, and I ran into the street and called for help. Soon sailors and other people came running, and I went back into my own house. I was terribly frightened and think I became hysterical. It was awful. I knew those people were killed, and I saw people running every way, all covered with molasses. They were hollering and crying. Robert Burnett was eating dinner with his family at 536 Commercial Street, which was opposite from the tank and had a view of the elevated rail. There was a rumble, no roar or explosion, he told the Post. I thought it was an elevated train until I heard a swish as if a wind was rushing. Then it became dark. I looked out the windows and saw this great black wave coming. It didn't rush, it just rolled slowly. It seemed like the side of a mountain falling into space. Of course it came quickly, but we all had a chance to jump and run before the windows began to crack. Then it poured molasses. He and his family followed their first impulses to run to the street, but when they opened the door to the hall of their building, they saw molasses had already reached the top of the 14-step flight of stairs. They ran instead to the roof of the building. B.E. Kingsley, who worked in the Bay State Railway offices nearby, also described hearing a rumble, which he initially mistook for the elevated train, but when he heard it again, he told the Post he looked out the window. Where the tank stood, there was no tank. Instead was a mighty wall of some kind, a giant wave of molasses, and it was sweeping rapidly down upon the office, gaining momentum every second. I turned and ran into the outer office, calling a warning to the clerks there. His colleagues had seen the unfolding torrent too, 
and they all went for the door. It was too late. A second later, it seemed there was a crash. Doors and windows were as if they had not existed. The molasses poured in. The wave was 15 feet high when it struck the building, and everything in the office, including myself and the clerks, was toppled over like nine pins under the weight of the wave. He and his colleagues clambered in the mess onto desks and were later rescued. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to witness these events unfold. So what happened to USIA? You know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this happened at a time when businesses got away with everything. No one was taking them to court, and when they did, judges weren't ruling against them. So many people expected them to get away with the disaster without any punishment. They made a passionate case as to why this wasn't their fault. So instead of owning the problem as a company for a poorly engineered tank, they tried to push the blame on others. They came up with a crazy theory that an anarchist climbed up the ladder on the tank and dropped a pipe bomb into a fermentation vent, and that was what caused the tank to explode. So because it was a terrorist act, USIA should be absolved of responsibility. Now, there was no evidence in the investigation that that was... uh, a true story or even a plausible uh, theory. So in the end, at the end of a lengthy civil suit, Judge Hugh Ogden awarded those who had died, who awarded their family members $6,000, which was the equivalent of around $600,000 today. And for people who suffered before they died, they were awarded Now, there was no mention in that of, you know, people who were injured, just those that were died, that, that died. Um, today, the great Boston molasses flood is something you'd read about in the history books. It's a distant memory. However, for decades after the accident, you could still smell molasses on the streets of Boston's North End neighborhood. I can't imagine, again, for people that had been through that trauma, just that continual smell and not being able to escape it would every day take them back to that same disaster and that same horror again and again and again. Some people still swear they can smell it today. Well, that's all I have for today's show If you like what you heard, make sure you leave a review and some feedback wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help me improve the show. I love reading your comments. It's always appreciated. If you want to talk more about the great Boston molasses flood, feel free to continue the conversation with me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Toasty Kettle. You can also comment on the show notes at ToastyKettle.com. Until next week.